0: Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, where we're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. I'm your host, Nick Peters, and wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you. We welcome our special guest and friend of the pod, Mojda Hevner. Dr. Hevner received a Bachelor of Science in Physiology and Neurobiology from University of Maryland, College Park, and a Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Maryland in Baltimore. Subsequently, she completed a PGY-1 Pharmacy Practice Residency and a PGY-2 Combined Critical Care and Solid Organ Transplant Specialty Residency at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. She's board certified in pharmacotherapy and critical care. Following her residency training, Dr. Hevner practiced as a clinical pharmacy specialist in the Medical Intensive Care Unit, served as the residency director of the Critical Care Pharmacy Specialty Program, and spent several years as the supervisor of clinical pharmacy services at Yale New Haven Hospital before joining the faculty at University of Maryland, Baltimore in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Science. She's currently an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Science and serves as the residency program coordinator for the pharmacotherapy program. She teaches critical care-related classes in the PharmD curriculum and co-manages the year-long required pharmacotherapy course at the School of Pharmacy. And she's taking a few moments out of her extremely busy day to talk to us a little bit about sleep in the ICU. So Mojda, welcome, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me today.
0: After reading that introduction, the thing that stood out to me is you did a kind of dual PGY two. I barely made it out of just a critical care residency, and you added solid organ transplant on top of that. I'm gonna guess that you have some expertise in um, sleep deprivation management from those year from that year.
1: That that's probably pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs>
0: So after you finished residency, was the plan to move back home to Maryland, or do you, did you all initially plan on kind of staying in Connecticut?
1: Um, you know, the plan was always to eventually move back to Maryland, um, given that I grew up here. But um, the opportunities that I had available to me after residency up in Connecticut were pretty exciting. So um, I definitely took advantage of that for a couple of years before heading back down south.
0: Absolutely. Now, I'm assuming you live in or around Baltimore now, correct? Right, yeah. So for those of us who maybe, you know, haven't visited or are planning on visiting, do you have any, you know, what's like a good restaurant or maybe a good place to get drink kind of recommendation for visitors?
1: Um, I have to say my favorite restaurant in Baltimore um, that I think a lot of people walk by and don't realize how great it is, is the Charleston. Um, you know, I've been to some fancy restaurants in New York City and other places, and, and I think it probably ranks up there with a lot of those restaurants.
0: Oh, now that sounds great. So is that more of like a, like a dinner place, or I've never heard of it?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit um, – it's, it's a pretty nice dinner place, um, American kind of contemporary food.
0: Oh, nice, nice. I Myself, I love Miss Shirley's. You know, their breakfast and brunch there is just absolutely undefeated.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: Um, now, generally speaking, kind of for the audience, how would you describe the, you know, quality or duration of your sleep generally?
1: Oh, it's actually kind of embarrassing. I think I, considering that sleep is something that I'm so interested in from a research and practice standpoint, um, I probably don't get enough sleep myself. I think I would estimate that I get maybe six hours a night, but I really, you know, I, I probably need more like eight to feel fully well rested. Um, but you know, it's just, it's challenging between getting home from work and getting kids to bed and doing the things we need to do for the next day. And then watching a little bit of Netflix, it's like, before you know it, it's, it's late and, uh, it's already too late to, um, getting to bed in order to get up in time for the next day.
0: Um, you know, a very common scenario for myself is that I'll wake up a little tired and I'll kind of tell myself, okay, tonight, you know, is the night that I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to, know, catch up on all that sleep. And then by the time everything in the day comes and you're right, either between Netflix or emails or some sort of sports, you know, game or something, I wake up, you know, I go to bed late and I wake up in the same thing. It's like a perpetual cycle.
1: (laughs) Right. Hard Um, to ever get caught up.
0: That's exactly right. So enough about our sleep habits. So how did you first become interested in sleep specifically with ICU patients?
1: Yeah, so uh, during my time at Yale New Haven, when I first started as the MICU clinical specialist there, um, I worked clinically with Dr. Margaret Pisani, who, as you know, is uh, an internationally renowned delirium expert and was an author on the latest PADIS guidelines. Um, and she there were a couple things that she ingrained in my mind. One of those was discouraging the use of benzodiazepines, um, and another was the importance of letting patients get sleep at night. Uh, And then Melissa Knauer is another individual who really influenced my interest in in sleep in the ICU early in my career. Um, So she was doing a sleep fellowship at Yale after completing her Palm Critical Care Fellowship. And she actually reached out to me to discuss medication-related issues that may be causing sleep disruption in our patients. Uh, And I remember, I distinctly remember sitting with her in the MICU team room. And she was asking me a lot of questions about the timing of medications overnight, like how frequently do we dose certain antibiotics? And when are we typically getting vancomycin and aminoglycoside levels? You know, when do the nurses have to change uh, bags for drips that that, that, that they're hanging? And then how are we timing medications as a default, like when they're ordered Q12 or Q8? And it was in that moment that I realized that, as uh, given that there are so many medication-related disruptions to sleep uh, for our patients in the ICU, that as a pharmacist, I was actually complicit in causing a lot of the sleep deprivation that was happening to our patients. Um, so with that, for the next couple years after that, while I was at Yale, um, there were several pilots happening Um, that were going on with uh, particularly nurses and pharmacists as a collaboration to try to retime medications and drug levels overnight so we could try to avoid waking up patients. And this was hospital-wide, and I was kind of peripherally involved in these. Um, Mostly this was The nurses kind of retiming medications if possible, and then the pharmacists were um, kind of retrospectively running reports in the morning to see if uh, what medications were being administered the night before, and then making interventions during rounds to adjust the med schedule so that that wouldn't happen the next night. And um, as I said, this was hospital-wide and really mostly a focus for the floors and less of an uh, initiative for the ICUs. Um, The exception to that was our CICU pharmacist who was really doing an awesome job of systematically looking at this with his nurses and seeing really great results in terms of uh, a reduction of the number of medications that were administered overnight in his unit and not, at least anecdotally um, and kind of through retrospective chart review, seeing any obvious clinical issues related to that, to the adjustment of medication schedules. Um, so with that framework in mind, uh, and kind of around that same time, I also became a new mom, and bringing this back to a personal front, I my perspective changed dramatically personally um, in my understanding of sleep disruption, and uh, I remember I was a resident, and even as a clinical pharmacy specialist, I had to carry uh, what we call the formulary pager, which Um, woke us up, you know, at all hours of the night Mm -hmm. when providers had requests for medications that were either restricted or not on our formulary. And I remember joking that it was like having a baby, but I had no idea at the time. (laughs) Um, I learned that with a newborn that you're woken up every two hours with a crying baby who needs to be fed, um, burped with a diaper change, and then try to get some sleep before that next interval starts. So uh, needless to say that after going through that week after week, it led to some serious sleep deprivation (laughs) and it was really around, it was really with baby number two when I was so out of it and so sleep deprived that I put a dirty diaper in the fridge that I realized (laughs) how this was really impacting me. And I had a truly a newfound personal connection to my patients and a a better appreciation for the importance of sleep in, in the ICU as well.
0: Oh no! Um, so, so how how long did it take for you to realize that that happened? I hope it was the next day.
1: <laughs> it was it was a pretty immediate reaction. Okay. Like I kind of was putting it in there, like as if this was a normal thing to do, and then immediately realized, what am I doing? Oh my goodness! I need to get a nap. So <laughs> yeah. Um, Yeah, so definitely a newfound personal uh, connection with that, um, with the topic. And then after starting here at University of Maryland, I was really fortunate to be connected uh, to Emerson Wickwire, who's actually a sleep psychologist here at the School of Medicine. Um, And now with him and other collaborators at my practice site, I'm working on a number of projects that are related to sleep in the ICU in hopes of better understanding the science behind um, what's going on with our patients, um, and also kind of concurrently, um, improving sleep related care of my patients in a systematic way.
0: Well, even if we aren't parents, I, I think all of us can relate to being, you know, sleep deprived at, at one time or another, but generally speaking, why, why is sleep disruption so bad? And, you know, kind of specifically diving into, to critical care, you know, why is it so bad for ICU patients?
1: Yeah, I mean, just to put it in perspective, if you think about the amount of time that we spend asleep, it's about a third of our life. So you would assume that sleep is probably providing something very important for our bodies, and uh, one would also assume that sleep deprivation likely is leading to some big changes in our bodies, um, and we see this with regards to the extensive changes um, that happens in the body's homeostasis. And I'll go through some of what we understand and, and also what we specifically know about in ICU patients. Um, we think that sleep deprivation is associated with an increased susceptibility to illness. Uh, what's interesting is that acute sleep deprivation may transiently enhance the immune system, but a more persistent sleep deprivation has been shown to actually attenuate healthy volunteers' responses to vaccinations. So putting this in the perspective of ICU patients, I think that um, you know, perhaps acutely, um, we may not necessarily see an impact on their immune system, but especially with perhaps chronic critical illness, uh, we may see more immunosuppression related to sleep deprivation. Um, and then looking at the neuroendocrine effects, um, in a study of healthy volunteers, sleep deprivation led to a small increase in thyroid hormone levels. Which, uh, as you're probably thinking, this is the opposite of what we see in critically ill patients overall. So, putting those two together, we don't really know what would happen to thyroid hormone levels in a critically ill patient who is also sleep deprived. Um, we also know that sleep deprivation in ICU patients causes changes in their normal circadian variants of different hormones and um, catecholamines like norepinephrine, prolactin, growth hormone. We also see that even sleep deprivation of one night in the ICU can cause increased cortisol levels the following day. Um, We also see changes in insulin resistance and effects on nitrogen balance. And so, as you can imagine, while we don't fully understand the full consequences of these changes, you can imagine that in an ICU patient, um, any kind of alterations in these hormones is going to have uh, pretty severe consequences and then from a neurocognitive perspective, uh, sleep deprivation, we're all familiar with, you know, healthcare providers who lose sleep with shift work. Uh, this is going to increase irritability, memory loss, inattention, delusions, even hallucinations. Um, people say that, you know, when somebody is sleep deprived, that they often act like they're drunk. And so we see patients having, or people having slurred speech and loss of coordination, blurred vision. Um, we definitely have, uh, appreciation for this as healthcare providers with shift work. Um, And I'll touch more on what that means in terms of the impact on our ICU patients later. So I'll just leave it at that. But um, overall, these changes related to sleep deprivation, as you can imagine, seem to have kind of a fight or flight type of effect on the body, Mm -hmm. which it kind of makes sense to me when I think of it from the perspective of evolution. So like the caveman who's trying to run away from danger, um, and losing sleep because of it, that guy's going to need a lot of endorphins and a lot of prosympathetic system hormones running around if he's going to survive that attack.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, sleep deprivation can create problems not only in ICU patients, but for me and you.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: I guess I'm, I'm going to have to think twice before I put that extra episode of Seinfeld on a night, then, is what I'm hearing.
1: Right, right. Um, and I should probably take my own advice as well.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's like I commonly say to students and residents, do as I say, not as I do, right? Right. <laughs> so I'd like to talk about some of the changes you discussed. So do these kind of physiologic changes that occur as a result of sleep deprivation, does that translate into worse clinical outcomes?
1: You know, it's interesting because um, I think uh, we, we believe that it should, um, but I actually haven't been able to find a lot of um, clinical outcome data related to sleep deprivation in ICU patients. Um, so I think this is a great area for future research um, because, you know, like direct correlations are just really hard to kind of identify with this. However, uh, looking at a mouse model of sleep deprivation, uh, was clearly shown to inc- cause an increase in mortality. Um, obviously, it's going to be very hard, if not impossible, to ethically conduct a prospective randomized controlled trial in humans of sleep deprivation versus adequate high-quality sleep. So we're never going to have that uh, really pure outcome data, but I think it would be interesting to look at something like um, you know, groups that are matched for baseline characteristics in terms of their severity of illness um, and that in the ICU, and then assessed for their sleep during the duration of their ICU stay to see if sleep deprivation has any impact on their clinical outcomes, like mortality.
0: A huge, huge area for research. I completely agree. Now, you mentioned that, right, the issues that come with sleep, but I guess, are we putting, you know, the bull in front of the horn, you know, cause how do we actually know that ICU patients have issues with sleep or, you know, are we trying to solve problems that may not actually exist right now?
1: That's a really good question. A uh, valid point. And I'm going to be really careful with my words here because there is a common misconception that ICU patients are simply not getting enough sleep and it's way more complicated than that. Um, There's a lot that we do know about uh, sleep in ICU patients and I'll kind of outline the things that that we understand. Um, So we know that total sleep time in a 24 hour period is actually kind of normal. And a lot of ICU patients may actually be getting more sleep than we are, um, probably somewhere around seven to nine hours. But there are several aspects about that sleep that are abnormal and that is potentially what could lead to problems. Um, And so one of those big differences is sleep fragmentation. And that refers to the number of awakenings per hour. And we see that that's higher in ICU patients than healthy subjects. And, you know, some of that may just be that they are, they are inherently, they are waking up more frequently. um, But it also could be that we are waking them up. Um, There's reports that ICU patients can be interrupted um, up to 60 times per night related to patient care activities.
0: Wow, six, zero, times. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's crazy when we put that in terms of an objective number that we can think about. If somebody was waking me up 60 times per night, I would probably be pretty angry. (laughs) So, um, and then we also know that ICU patients have lighter... Uh, depth of sleep, um, and we are, if you actually look at the proportion of time that they're spending in the lighter stages of sleep, referring specifically to N1 and N2 sleep, that's greater than the proportion that they spend during the deeper stages of sleep um, that help us feel better, um, specifically N3 and rapid eye movement or REM. Um, I've even heard that uh, sleep in ICU patients is unusual or atypical according to the normal tools we use to assess sleep quality in depth, uh, meaning that so what we categorize typically as N2 sleep in ICU patients may actually be something else. And uh, it looks different than, well, than typical N2 sleep, so it is possible that it's actually not as restful as normal N2 sleep or that it represents some other pathological process that we have yet to even fully understand. Um, Another big thing related to the uh, sleep that ICU patients get is that about 50% of sleep is happening at night. So uh, the remaining half is happening during the day with little naps. And, you know, we don't know that necessarily the quality of that sleep is going, going to be the same. Um, and so what does this translate into in terms of what patients actually feel? While subjectively, patients report that their sleep while in the ICU is much worse than their sleep at home. And there's actually at least one study in specifically in cancer patients who have been, uh, who were in the ICU, they reported that uh, a loss of sleep was one of the most disturbing things that they experienced while in the ICU. Um, So, there's a lot more that we need to learn about sleep in the ICU, but uh, these are all obviously very, you know, concerning, differences that we need to keep in mind
0: well and if you've you know i think we've all felt the the hospital mattress and that is in no way comforting for a for a night of sleep especially if people are used to you know having really nice mattresses that's going to be you know a real challenge so i think we can all agree that the sleep fragmentation you know waking up 60 times a night will lead to sleep deprivation right or as you described earlier just a a night in the life of new parents. Um, (laughs) But sleep deprivation and delirium, right, they can definitely present similarly. So does sleep Mm -hmm. deprivation lead to a higher risk of delirium? You know, do we know, is there a link at all here that we've been able to find?
1: Yeah. And I mentioned, I would, I would talk more about the neurocognitive effects. And this is really um, where it's, I think, most interesting. Um, The relationship Between sleep loss in the ICU and delirium is actually not very clearly understood, although I think most of us, um, it's commonly believed by many of us that there likely is a connection there. Um, And as you said, there are a lot of features of sleep deprivation that are similar to delirium. If you just think about kind of the definition of ICU delirium, um, you know, things like impaired level of consciousness, impaired attention impaired memory consolidation as represented by short-term memory loss and that inability to concentrate, which we see as disorganized thought. Really the only feature of delirium that maybe is not consistently present in patients who have sleep deprivation is orientation. Um, although I would probably argue that at, that at times during my <laughs> sleep deprived states, I maybe wasn't totally oriented to uh, maybe the, the day of the week or even the month at times. So, um, you know, I think, there are clearly some clinical features that are very, very similar. Um, and taking it one step further, uh, we have seen very clearly and consistently that REM sleep is lower if delirium is present. And so a lower amount of REM sleep is actually uh, significantly correlated with a higher risk of development of delirium. Um, and as I mentioned, REM sleep is one of the deepest stages of sleep, and that helps us feel really rested. Um, the question we don't know is whether lack of REM is causing delirium or is delirium impairing our ability to go into REM. So I think that needs to be sorted out um, to see if there's any kind of causal relationship. And uh, similarly, as I mentioned, delirium is associated with a greater circadian sleep cycle disruption, referring to the, you know, half of the time spent sleeping is actually during the day for ICU patients. And similarly, this raises the question of whether delirium causes patients to be more likely to sleep during the day or does daytime sleepiness cause delirium? So these are kind of the questions we need to figure out. Uh, a number of years ago, um, Alex Flannery led a great systematic review and meta-analysis to try to understand how um, interventions that we do to try to promote sleep in the ICU then impact the clinical outcome of ICU delirium. And they ended up looking at 10 studies, four of which had bundled interventions. One of them evaluated earplugs only, three evaluated pharmacologic therapy, and two evaluated bright light therapy to try to optimize that circadian rhythm to, um, Imbalance that we're seeing. And the biggest limitation, not surprisingly, to this systematic review was due to the heterogeneity and the overall lower quality of the studies that were looked at, um, as well as the difficulty with generalizability due to a lot of patients that we would typically have in our ICU being excluded, and overall, the patients that they ended up including in a lot lot of these studies had lower patient acuity. Um, However, what they did see was kind of interesting. So, six of the studies demonstrated a statistically significant reduction in the incidence of ICU delirium, specifically associated with Interventions, and several of them also showed shorter duration of delirium and even reduced length of ICU stay. I think all of this is really promising, in my opinion. Um, I really agree. Yes, yeah, so I think the take-home is that we are. At a place with our understanding of ICU delirium, where we know that there's a huge spectrum in the clinical presentation of delirium, with just like hypoactive and hyperactive being the most basic categories of it, we also know that delirium is likely caused by a number of different factors, um, which probably lend to different presentations and different prognoses. And I feel very strongly that sleep disruption in the ICU is likely one of those top factors impacting the transition to delirium, but of course, You know, as you can imagine, in an ICU patient, there are a lot of other factors. Um, So if you go and you mess up someone's sleep while they're in the ICU, you give them some medications that cause confusion, and then on top of that, they have septic shock, um, I think you have a recipe for ICU delirium. Um, And So it's really difficult, if not impossible, to actually show that direct causal effect of of sleep deprivation and ICU delirium because you're really never going to be able to tease out all those other factors that also contribute to transition to delirium.
0: Well, I'm with you. I, I agree that although, you know, we we may never be able to do create a direct correlation just from all the confounders and things. I, I think there's a, a cause effect relationship there as well. Now, you know, Kind of thinking sleep and delirium, right? With delirium, you know, there's a huge emphasis on prevention because once you are delirious, right, then there's not a lot of options. And you know, kind of thinking that same way for sleep, like, are there any risk factors or people that we should kind of have our our you know alert up for in terms of you know patients who may be at risk for some of that sleep disruption in the ICU?
1: Yeah, and I think I think the key is to kind of separate it out the way you did with the modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors and you know, at least be aware of the non-modifiable mm-hmm. risk factors. Um, and some of those risk factors that patients come in with would be like being female, being older, and then comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, cancer, thyroid disease. Um, interestingly, the factors that have consistently been shown to um, increase the risk for sleep disruption are for patients who report poor quality of sleep at home and those patients who report regular use of sleep aids at home. Um, But as I said, those are all non-modifiable. So they are what they are, but, you know, certainly important to keep in mind when we have patients who fit kind of those buckets. Um, Interestingly, all of the risk factors that are modifiable are acquired in the ICU, things that we do to them or that they end up having while they're with us. Mm. Um, The 2018 PADIS guidelines actually have a great, table that categorizes the factors that disrupt sleep as either being environmental, care-related, physiologic, or pathophysiologic, and then psychologic. And the list is pretty extensive, but I'll highlight some of the main ones that I think are really pertinent. So, uh, noise at night in the ICU actually regularly exceeds what is recommended. Um, And when we think of noise in the ICU, at least during the day, what do you think of?
0: Yeah, the alarms.
1: Right. We always think of the alarms because a lot of times we are, you know, in the middle of rounding and the alarms are just going off. And maybe they're not always necessarily, you know, actually indicating something that urgently needs attention. Um, I can't even imagine what that must be like for patients who are trying to sleep at night with those with that level of noise going on.
0: And who don't even understand what those alarms are even doing. So you're in this exactly. unknown place with these loud noises, and right? And you know you're sick or, or you know, if you, if you are aware, you know something's wrong with you. And so, yeah, that would probably be terrifying.
1: Exactly. I can imagine that it actually could be potentially, you know, disorienting actually to have um, that level of noise at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and light is a similar issue. Um, we've, there have been studies that have looked at the, the level of light at night and seeing that it's several times brighter than what we consider would be the minimum amount of light that's thought to impair sleep. And I know like, I'm really sensitive to light. So we had to get blackout curtains so that I could feel comfortable (laughs) at night. So I can't even imagine when, you know, there's like lights on in the hallway um, or the light has to be turned on every time there's uh, the patient, there's something needed in the patient's room. Um, I can't imagine how patients are able to sleep with that. Um, the opposite problem is also true, and we often forget about that, but many ICUs don't get much daylight exposure with windows, um, and a lot of times, even when there um, are windows, the blinds are closed, um, or you know, lights are off during the day potentially, and this throws off the patient's circadian rhythm even further. I know a lot of times patients and their families are actually the ones requesting to turn lights off during the day to try to help them rest, but I think this is probably more harmful in actually throwing off their normal biological clocks. So we also, as I kind of touched on, we also wake our patients up quite a bit, uh, 60 times a day potentially with routine ICU care. And I've recently made the point of listening more carefully to hear when my patients receive their baths. And I've noticed that oftentimes this is ending up happening overnight because it's maybe a little bit quieter at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, We also, as everybody knows, we also do our morning labs at most centers for like 2 a.m., 4 a.m., maybe at best. in a a lot of ICU's. Um, On top of that, we're giving medications that are maybe ordered Q3 hours. We're giving insulin drips that maybe require hourly labs and hourly titrations. Um, We're checking vitals um, hourly in a lot of scenarios as well. So on top of all of these conditions that seem kind of horrendous already, I think it's also important to note that patients may have untreated pain. They may be uncomfortable because of the ventilator. They may just they may have nausea, or as you kind of touched on, they may have some anxiety about what's happening to them. Maybe have a new diagnosis. Um, I want to briefly talk about the pain and anxiety, and then our the sedation that we give as a factor for uh, sleep disruption. So obviously, having untreated pain or anxiety may be. Um, enough to keep a patient up at night, but we also have to remember that if we're giving patients sedating medications during the day, that they may be sleeping more during the day as a result of that, and therefore not spending as much time at night sleeping. Uh, On top of that, the effect of a lot of these medications uh, on the quality of sleep has also been studied, and specifically like benzodiazepines and opiates are consistently associated with REM suppression, so they're not getting while, while it may look like they're sleeping, while they're on these medications, they may not be having restorative sleep.
0: Which makes sense, right? Because this is kind of the same concept of, you know, a few decades, you know, m- maybe even shorter. You know, everyone was, you know, getting deeply sedated because they looked like they were sleeping, right? So that's sleep. Um, so that, right. you know, this this absolutely makes sense. Now you mentioned the 2018 PADIS guidelines, so I want to dive a bit deeper into that topic because these updated guidelines actually have recommendations, including guidance on things like rehabilitation, mobility, and sleep. Um, so, you know, what do these guidelines recommend for our assessment of of sleep?
1: Yeah, I have to say I was pretty excited when the guidelines came out and had recommendations <laughs> for sleep as an entire section within the um, within the document, um, because it just meant that we were at least going to pay some more attention to this area. Um, the authors uh, specifically suggested not routinely using physiological sleep monitoring in clinically in ICU patients. Um, so... To kind of elaborate on that, specifically, it's not that they're saying don't assess sleep. They're saying don't use these devices that look at things like EEGs and, and you know, to kind of determine whether patients and when patients are sleeping. They explicitly state that um, although routine monitoring using those devices is not recommended, that clinicians should be either asking about sleep, um, either informally or, or using a validated assessment tool that's meant to assess sleep in their ICU patients. Um, kind of in a consistent manner
0: that is such an important point I completely agree about because when I first read it I had that same kind of takeaway of you know they didn't you know they kind of suggest against routine physiologic monitoring but when you dig into like the supplemental tables and things they really just say hey there's not enough evidence to justify its use or cost but there should be something there I mean absolutely So now, generally speaking, what are we doing now in regards to, like, routine sleep assessment? Um, You know, is there any, you know, standard of care or, um, you know, a, a nationwide kind of assessment that people have been using?
1: Yeah, so I I actually haven't seen any studies that have specifically asked about um, or have measured the prevalence of routine sleep assessments in the ICU, but I would hypothesize that we're not routinely assessing sleep in ICU patients (laughs) at most institutions, and I'm kind of extrapolating this based on um, a study in 2008 that I published through, which was a survey through the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, Critical Care Practice and Research Network, and... So the pharmacist that responded, only 9% of those respondents said that their ICU had a sleep protocol. And while that's not explicitly saying whether they assess sleep, I would take it one step further and say that likely if an institution does not have a sleep promoting protocol in their ICU, that they're probably also not assessing sleep in their ICU patients in any kind of like systematic fashion. Although we don't necessarily know that explicitly. And of course, now I wish I had asked that question (laughs) in my survey, but I really didn't I didn't really understand the importance of assessment of sleep at the time. Um, and I w- wasn't as aware of kind of um, how important that is in everything else.
0: I mean, what options do we even have available to help, like, assess the patient's sleep? You know, because, you know, um, I work at a kind of smaller institution. And so a lot of times, right, we really don't have a lot of options.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so we have the physiologic uh, assessments that I kind of touched on um, that the PADIS guidelines really don't recommend using clinically, um, and the gold standard physiologic assessment is polysomnography or PSG, um, but there are a lot of logistical and practical issues with using it in the ICU. It's rather expensive. Um, you'd have to have a device on every patient in order to do this monitoring. It's basically a continuous EEG, and you also need somebody who's actually trained on sleep assessments and scoring to be able to get the depth of sleep um, and measure that. Um, and we also would have to have these on for 24 hours a day because, as I mentioned, you know, only half of actual sleep time happens at night.
0: Oh, so you're um, saying we only need to have every patient hooked up to continuous EEG every day and then have special training to be able to look at those. Oh, that, seems,
1: right. that seems pretty right. reasonable. No I don't know deal. what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So in an ideal world, and we do have a lot of monitoring going on in the ICU, but this is probably not something that we – you know, absolutely need to monitor. There's also issues with being able to actually read those assessments, um, given some of the kind of atypical um, patterns that we see with sleep in ICU patients. So kind of even being able to assess that on a further level is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um there are other tools too, but they're, they kind of have similar issues. So actigraphy is another physiological assessment tool that we have. And this one monitors body movements to determine when the patient's sleeping, um, which obviously would run into some issues in patients who are neuromuscularly blocked. Um, it correlates well with PSG, but it is easier to use. So that's nice. I would say, you know, it's still expensive and we still need more studies in ICU patients and it still has some of the logistical issues that we talked about. Um, there's also bispectral index or BIS. Um, and so this is the benefit of this over actigraphy would be that you can use this in paralyzed patients. Um, although there's not a lot of data with its use in ICU patients to assess sleep and it has still some of the similar issues with just like the practicality of having a device on the patient. Um, so that kind of leaves us with, okay, maybe we should follow what the PATIS guidelines say and use <laughs> these sleep questionnaires as the most practical option to assess sleep routinely in our patients without having to invest a lot of money to purchase devices for every single patient in the ICU. Um, And the Richards Campbell sleep questionnaire is probably the most widely used scale. And that includes um, uh, five questions on looking at sleep depth, ability to fall asleep, the number of awakenings, awake time, and the overall sleep quality that um, as assessed by the patient.
0: That seems like a a much more practical option for for kind of universal adaptation. Um, right. When um, in my ICU, when we are completing multidisciplinary rounds, right, we we invite families out to participate in them. And um, I think something that has become more common, probably in the last year or two, is that you know family members are frequently highlighting issues with sleep. So what would you say are some limitations to relying exclusively on family members to bring up, you know, sleep issues for, you know, their loved ones, their friends, family, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I I think it's great that we're incorporating family members and even patients when possible into the rounding process and when they can offer up information about patients' sleep and other things, it's really helpful. Um, But I think we just cannot rely on them to consistently bring up those issues and they don't know that's their role and they're not trained to be able to provide us with the information we need consistently. Um, So I think ultimately we just, we're responsible for um, incorporating sleep assessments into our workflow kind of in a systematic way or else it's just not going to be done consistently
0: that's 100 percent right because you know they're going through you know something traumatic as well and so you have to think you know they're probably just as sleep deprived you know if when they're if the patient stays in the ICU for for a couple days yeah definitely. so Moshe, you've done a really fantastic job, kind of reviewing the effects of sleep deprivation. Who is at risk? How to assess it? How to assess their sleep? And I think, kind of, the big, you know, question remaining is how can we manage it? Like, how, how can we prevent, treat, etc.? So, what do do the PA, do the PADIS guidelines give us any suggestions regarding non pharmacologic management of sleep disruption? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so they specifically, they go into some suggestions for certain ventilator modes that may be more uh, conducive to quality sleep based on good evidence that we have. Um, they also spend a lot of time talking about uh, efforts to um, to reduce noise and light, um, although um, interestingly they review a lot of studies that have um, gone over the use of um, either offering patients eye shades or earplugs um, and not necessarily like systematically reducing noise and light on an ICU level. So um, that's kind of what they recommend is, is offering those those things for patients who request them. Um, and then based on the available evidence, they do not suggest using things like aromatherapy or acupressure or music at night, which all sound very lovely. And I would love to feel like a little bit like a spa day, but um, they are not recommended um, based on small studies, um, either not showing a benefit or difficulty with generalizability and just kind of the impracticality of giving every patient in the ICU a spa day before they go to sleep, you know?
0: You know, I'm I'm of the of the movement that I think we need spa days for the critical care team. So I think that that's uh, I, <laughs> that's our next that. that's our next endeavor, I think, is to try to is to try to make that happen. Um yeah. so what types of interventions do you know would you recommend as part of a, you know, non pharmacologic sleep bundle, which is, you know, they refer to the bundle in the in the PATIS guidelines.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think a bundled approach is important. Um, it kind of gets at all of the different issues that we're dealing with. And I think, and we kind of have to do this on an ICU level rather than um, focusing initially on a patient by patient basis. Um, and I'm sure some of what I say is going to be, uh, you know, met with some skepticism because they're challenging to implement a lot of these things, but we at least have this, have to have this conversation. Um so there's way too much noise in our ICUs. We've already talked about that. I feel like a lot of this is probably unnecessary. So I think we can, you know, systematically go through and see if there's a way to kind of minimize the alarms, either the noise level itself or minimize the number of alarms that are going off. Um, even just simple things like being um, careful at night and respectful to our patients' sleep in terms of keeping our own voices down when patients are sleeping, you know, putting on pagers and phones on vibrate at night to try to. Um, eliminate that source of noise. Um, in terms of light on a systematic, like ICU level basis, I think I've heard a lot of, a lot of ICUs have really done things to try to improve this, um, but there's probably a lot of more work that we can continue to do, uh, trying to keep the lights off in patients' rooms and unless absolutely necessary, keeping hallway lights off or dimmed, um, and then just simple things like turning the monitor away from the patient so that the bright green light is not, you know, shining in their face. Um, And then I think only after we've at least made an effort to do those big things, should we offer things like earplugs and eye shades on an individual basis to see if that helps with, um, you know, further kind of control of noise and light. Um, I think we should avoid waking patients up at night for routine patient care assessments, Um, if possible. um, You know, and patient care assessments and then other patient care activities. So is that bath at 2am really necessary? Um, Maybe sometimes the things that work for us from an ICU workflow perspective are not the best thing for our patients, and so we may have to make some compromises, like big things like shifting morning labs potentially from 2 to 4 a.m. to more like 5 or 6 a.m. if possible. And I realize a lot of this may not be practical, but I think having those discussions around um, and trying to modify our workflow around what's best for the patient rather than the other way around is really important. Um, Another thing that I've touched on a couple of times is um, keeping patients awake during the day, if possible, to try to help them with sleeping at night, and so making sure that the lights are on and the blinds are open if they have windows, um, and really trying to discourage when patients or family members request to turn off those lights or close those blinds. Another great way to keep patients awake during the day and get them tired for the night is exercise. There's actually a lot of research coming out on positive relationships between exercise um, during the day and then sleep quality. And Nick, I know you're a runner and you could probably relate to this. Um, and by exercise and ICU patients, I don't mean marathon training, um, but I mean you know early mobility and I think, you know, not only will this have a positive effect on sleep quality, but we know that it has uh, the likelihood to improve delirium outcomes as well. So very important intervention.
0: That, that's exactly right. It seems like, and, and it makes sense that, you know, along with delirium, right, there's a, a, re, a clear emphasis on non-pharmacologic management. But kind of like you said, not only is there things that are outside of our control, non-modifiable risk factors, but, you know, this literally happened today where we had a discussion on sleep, and then we go into the patient's room at 10 o'clock and the family member turned all the lights off. And so, you know, sometimes, mm-hmm. again, there are factors to where, You you can try all the non-pharmacologic things, um, but it may not work. So, what what would you maybe recommend, um, or what do the the guideline authors recommend for any pharmacologic sleep promotion?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So, the first statement in the PATIS guidelines related to pharmacological therapy is to discourage the use of sleep enhancing medications, based on not only lack of efficacy but also lack of safety data and concerns for that increasing polypharmacy and even potential risk for delirium with related to some of these medications. And I'm assuming that that statement refers to a lot of the medications that we typically see in the outpatient setting for the management of chronic insomnia. They also mention certain drugs that have been studied in recent years for sleep in the ICU and review some of that evidence, but they go on to um, state that they make no recommendation relating to the use of melatonin or remelteon. They make no recommendation for dexmedetomidine specifically to improve sleep, but they do state a caveat that if the a sedative infusion is indicated for a hemodynamically stable ICU patient overnight, very specific, that this is a reasonable <laughs> option given that it may improve sleep architecture. Um, and the way that dexmedetomidine does that is through increasing stage two sleep and decreasing stage one sleep. So, um, So definitely an interesting, you know, kind of physiologic rationale for that. Uh, The only drug that the guidelines specifically discourage that's been studied in the ICU setting is um, propofol, given the lack of benefit that was observed in the improvement of sleep and then, of course, the possible side effects that we're all familiar with related to that drug.
0: So other than, you know, you mentioned kind of the potentially positive effects of using dexmedetomidine, you know, do any of the other medications like have any positive data or outcome data for sleep promotion in in our ICU patients?
1: Yeah. Um, I can tell that you really want to have like a pharmacological drug that's that's going to help with sleep. I know. Um, we want the magic before, pill <laughs> to
0: help we us all out We all do. We all do.
1: But, I, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit because before we talk about medications to promote sleep, let's talk about some medication-related things that we can do or not do to avoid disrupting sleep, which I think is like the the most important thing here really in terms of our practice. Um so kind of tying back to what I said about non-pharmacological interventions, we should avoid waking patients up at night, if possible, to give them medication. So that means looking at the medication list and seeing what we give overnight that we don't necessarily need to give overnight. Um, we can do this on a daily basis during rounds and kind of do a med cleanup list. Um we can also do this during order verification and kind of do this proactively before patients actually end up getting the medications overnight. Um, another way to do this is through um, looking on a systematic level and looking at order sets hospital-wide to see if medications can be timed differently, like BID instead of Q12, for example. Um, I actually I had a patient once who was reporting trouble sleeping in the ICU, and so my team had ordered melatonin to try to help with that. And after he'd gotten a couple nights of that melatonin, he reported he was, he was complaining it's not working. And I did a quick scan of the med list and I realized that we were giving him guafenicin every three hours. Uh, and we were waking him up at night in order to give him this medication. So we had a discussion about this uh, during rounds and we ended up changing the schedule so it was only administered during the day. And then, not surprisingly, Shortly thereafter, the patient was much happier and reported that, wow, his melatonin was really working. So, um, you know, it's really those little things that we can do to try to help promote sleep. And as I mentioned earlier, too, with the non-pharmacological interventions, it's also important to keep our patients awake and active during the day. Um, And so trying to minimize giving those sedating medications during the day if we can. Um, We also have to keep in the back of our minds, as I mentioned before, that a lot of these medications that we use for sedation in the ICU have negative consequences on sleep architecture. Um, Specifically, benzodiazepines, opiates, and even propofol decrease the amount of time that, that we see patients spending in REM sleep. So um, as we talked about, even if they're sleeping, it's actually not restorative and high quality sleep. So now I know I haven't fully answered your question yet, (laughs) um, but I want to be really clear that pharmacologic therapy should never be done first before other standards of care have been tried. So now, okay, assuming we've done all these things that we need to do now, what medications can we give? So I'm going to be, again, a little bit.
0: We're in the trust. uh, Everybody is, is listening to you. No one will try (laughs) any meds before we do non-pharmacologic stuff that the listeners, they signed an agreement by listening to this. So, so we are all on the same page.
1: Okay, good. Take home message there. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, once we talk about pharmacological agents, it really depends on what else is going on with the patient. Um, You know, if the patient is sitting in the ICU stable and maybe just waiting for a floor bed, but they have a little bit of insomnia, um, I would consider maybe melatonin as a relatively benign option in that kind of scenario. And the data with melatonin in the ICU are actually not that exciting, but at least it's been studied in that setting and physiologically makes sense given that patients in the ICU have disruption of their normal circadian rhythm. Um, And so melatonin kind of helps them essentially get that back on track. You can also consider remelteon given that it works similarly, but it doesn't have the same FDA regulation issues that come up with melatonin. Um, But the data with That drug also show kind of that the improved sleep quality are just not necessarily there, although it was shown to decrease delirium when it was given nightly to promote sleep. So that's quite interesting. Um, I will say that at my institution, we have melatonin on the formulary. um, And so that's, we tend to go with melatonin and not melatonin as our first line kind of med for routine sleep promotion. In terms of doses, I usually go I usually go bigger go home. I typically go recommend more like a ten milligram dose. Um although I know many of my colleagues will start lower and go up fast to ten milligrams if there's no response after like the first night or two.
0: Oh, I love that. So, I, I hate to I hate to admit that I start with either three or six. So I feel like I need to yeah. I need to change my my practice habits.
1: Yeah, there's, I, you know, there's not like data supporting one or the other, so I think you can't really go wrong with it. Um, so whatever's working for you. Um, another scenario, though, that um, we often encounter is a patient who has agitated delirium and is having difficulty with sleeping at night, and the agitation maybe seems to get worse at night. And I know this is a scenario that a lot of us encounter really frequently. So we could consider an antipsychotic in this scenario, especially given, you know, if the patient has hyperactive delirium um, and as a risk, you know, actually a risk to themselves or the care team. But I think we need to be careful and understand a little bit more the actual impact of antipsychotics on sleep. Um, and contrary to what I used to think, and I think probably what others believe as well, um, quetiapine Maybe the agent we actually want to avoid. Um, I, I used to previously think, okay, quetiapine has more CNS antihistamine activity, so it may cause more somnolence, so that would be a great drug to give at night to try to help promote sleep, but also kind of control some of their symptoms of delirium. But uh, interestingly, I've seen at least one study that looked at sleep quality in schizophrenic patients who were taking antipsychotics, and quetiapine actually had negative impacts on sleep quality, while the other antipsychotics showed positive effects on things like sleep latency, greater time in REM, and overall increased total sleep time. And now, you know, the gears are kind of turning. I'm wondering if this difference relates to the greater CNS and histamine activity that we see with quetiapine compared to the other agents. And then dexmedetomidine is another and maybe even better option for the scenario that I just described. Um, While I'm not that excited about the effects of dexmedetomidine on sleep architecture um, with like the N1N2, because it's not really impacting REM sleep, I still think it's interesting that we, you know, based on studies, we've seen that dexmedetomidine administered overnight improves delirium related outcomes. So I think that requires a little bit more study and perhaps, um, something to consider clinically using in our patients. And then a few drugs that I would absolutely 100% avoid for sleep in the ICU are things like benzodiazepines and antihistamines like diphenhydramine or hydroxazine. In my opinion, any benefit that you could possibly get by inducing sleep using those drugs um, would be negated by the decreased quality of sleep architecture, the increased risk for falls, and then the increased risk for delirium that we um, clearly know is there. And I would also discourage the use of propofol or opiates as well, um, as both of these agents will have similar issues um, in terms of um, effects on sleep architecture, but also cause respiratory depression and a whole host of other issues.
0: So you're saying that there's no magic pill?
1: There's no <laughs> magic pill, at least not yet.
0: Um, well, that's unfortunate. So researchers, if you're listening, <laughs> that's, that's where we need to go next. So I want to shift a little bit more into kind of case-based questions a little bit or more like questions that I think likely all of us have encountered when treating a patient who has, you know, chronic sleep problems, you know, what do you commonly do or recommend to the team for the patient, you know, who t- who's been taking a benzodiazepine for sleep for years or even decades? You know, do you, do you reduce the dose, use an alternative aging, keep it on PRN, you know, what's your general strategy there?
1: Um, I think it's really important first to kind of iron out if the patient's really taking the benzodiazepine consistently every night, because the last thing we want to do is start a medication that they weren't actually taking. Um, But if we find out that truly they were taking it regularly and they're really dependent on it, I may consider recommending a dose reduction um, and then offering it only PRN Uh, and watching for signs of withdrawal with a clear plan to wean off the benzodiazepine if possible (laughs) during the patient's hospital stay. Um, And just, you know, as much as I hate benzodiazepines for sleep in the ICU, I also wouldn't want to like stop cold turkey um, and and run the risk of of benzodiazepine withdrawal.
0: A hundred percent. Now, you know, a lot of those patients, you know, they would probably characterize themselves or have a diagnosis of, you know, chronic insomnia. So does your approach to managing sleep disruption in the ICU kind of change for some of those patients? You know, a lot of them, you know, they take the Z drugs a lot, right? Like zolpidem, for Mm -hmm. example. So, you know, how how do you help treat or manage the sleep for those patients?
1: Yeah, it's really tricky because there are actually discrepant recommendations out there for sleep in the ICU acutely versus chronic management of insomnia. So the American College of Physicians and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine both have put out um, comprehensive guidelines in the last couple of years on chronic insomnia management. Um, but it's a very different beast than acute sleep disruption in the ICU. And so we have to treat them very differently. So um Drugs like Zolpidem that have been clearly shown to improve sleep related metrics and chronic insomnia just haven't been studied um, in the ICU really yet. So, um, we don't know whether some of these drugs may actually ca- cause more harm than good in the ICU setting. So, that being said, I, you know, when a patient comes in with pre existing insomnia, they're going to struggle with that even more so in the ICU environment. Um, so, we have to deal with it. So, I think there are probably a lot of really strong opinions out there about this, but um, I kind of don't have a strong opinion, but I probably approach this the same way every time I get the question from my team. And uh, I, I think if the patient is alert and they are otherwise clinically stable, perhaps waiting for a floor bed, and the patient feels strongly that they want to resume their home zolpidem, I would say that's probably fine. So, essentially, letting it be more of a patient satisfaction issue than anything else. Um, And then kind of looking at it, In a different scenario, if the patient is more of a typical ICU patient, even if the zolpidem is listed on their med list, I would probably avoid reinitiating it while they're in the ICU and just really focus on the non-pharmacological approach, making sure that's optimized, Um, maybe even considering melatonin if the patient's not sleeping or, you know, kind of the antipsychotics or dexmedetomidine approach that I already mentioned. Um, And then only if the patient's really requesting their Z drug would I necessarily go that route.
0: Mm -hmm. now you mentioned a lot as we're thinking about like sleep protocols or kind of changing the culture of sleep that um you know you need a basically a buy-in from not only the unit and, and the team was at least how i was you know interpreting that so how important would you say is multidisciplinary involvement to kind of help improve and promote sleep for the icu patients
1: yeah i think um and before I really get to that answer, that answer for you, I'm going to say that the first thing we need to do with improving sleep in the ICU is to have a systematic sleep assessment program, um, because I, I wouldn't want to implement any kind of improvement program, um, either non farm or farm necessarily, without being able to measure the effects of our of our program, um, both on a patient level, as well as on a, an ICU level. So that being said, uh, I think the, as you can imagine, the most important stakeholder for that assessment would be nurses. Um, and I would probably start at the top by engaging nursing management and the educators and any kind of like quality improvement specialists that are in the unit, um, You absolutely have to also have physician leadership engagement um, in order to effectively be able to incorporate this assessment program systematically into your, your workflow. Um, You know, we all know that if you assess something um, or you, but you don't talk about it, nothing's going to happen with that. So it's definitely important to have kind of both physicians and nurses um, engaged in this. And then I think getting leadership engagement hopefully will then cause sort of a trickle down effect down to your end user with the with the front line um, bedside nurses and physicians and then of course you know also engaging any pharmacists and then uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants in the unit as well to be kind of part of this um, multi-component change that's going on in the ICU. 100%
0: and so I I feel like a lot of us listening here may be pharmacists so what would you say our role in promoting sleep in the ICU is?
1: Um, so, you know, according to the survey that I, I talked about earlier that um, was pharmacist focused. Um, Most pharmacists felt pretty comfortable making recommendations, both non-pharmacological and pharmacological, to try to optimize sleep in their ICU patients. But um, almost everyone who responded to the survey identified barriers to optimizing sleep in their ICU. And one of the most important barriers that they noted was an absence of institutionally standardized ICU sleep guidelines. So with that, kind of framework in mind that we probably don't have like a protocolized way to approach sleep in our institutions. There are a few things that all of us can start doing today. Um, So we can at the very least help to optimize sleep through our normal, normal workflow. If we're verifying orders, We can make sure that the non-urgent medications are not being administered uh, unnecessarily overnight, like the guafenicin Q3 hours example I raised. Um, This can also be done during profile reviews, you know, retrospectively. Um, And we can also, of course, try to avoid ordering drug levels to be drawn overnight unless absolutely necessary. Um, while doing profile reviews, while while rounding, we can also identify if sedating medications are given during the day and maybe they don't need to be, they can be retimed or just stopped altogether. Um, and then we as pharmacists can talk to our teams about sleep during rounds and we can really drive those discussions to make sure that it happens every day on every patient. Um, we can make sure that we're not jumping to ordering sleep aids without optimizing the other standards of care. And we can certainly make sure that the medications that we're giving, um, that can be harmful to sleep architecture are not being prescribed to try to promote sleep. Um, so those are kind of the day-to-day things, but there's also a few bigger scale kind of longer term things that we as pharmacists can do to drive change and um, how we manage sleep in patients in the ICU. Um, I touched on this earlier, but we can review order sets and try to ensure that the timing of non-urgent medications are appropriately avoiding nighttime hours. We, we, can and we should collaborate with ICU leadership to try to implement sleep assessment programs to make sure that sleep is being talked about even when we're not there. Um, We can also aid in education for other healthcare providers. Uh, In my unit, I know so the pharmacists have been providing education monthly to our house staff on pain, agitation, delirium for a number of years. And the hope is that now we're going to start incorporating more information on sleep as part of that routine uh, education. And then last but not least, um, we can have an impact on sleep in the ICU research. And this is an area for uh, ample opportunities uh, for expanding our knowledge and understanding, as I mentioned, with all the things that we, all the questions that are still unanswered and medication related issues that, and beyond that, we as pharmacists can get involved with and even lead as part of an interprofessional initiative.
0: Well, this has been incredibly enlightening, educating, you know, all of this. I I can speak for myself that a lot of this was new information for myself. So what would you say are probably the biggest take-home points for our audience, right, that they can, you know, bring back to help promote sleep in their ICU?
1: So I think, number one, making ICU-level changes to promote sleep first, specifically the noise and light. Um, and then medication and patient care timing issues that we talked about. Um, making sure that we're assessing sleep in the ICU using a standardized tool. And I would ideally recommend the Richards Campbell Sleep Questionnaire. And then I really think we need to start talking about sleep like we talk about MAP. So like if a patient slept poorly overnight, we need to figure out as a team why and come up with an individualized plan um, as kind of that interprofessional team. And then I think um, we also need to contribute to gaps in research by using good study methods to try to make those studies a little bit more generalizable than they have been. So studying pharmacologic options only after standard of care, non-pharmacological therapies have been implemented. making sure we use both validated questionnaires and physiologic measures of sleep for assessment in order to be able to truly pick up on whether there are changes in sleep-related outcomes um, associated with our interventions. And then I think we need more randomized controlled trials. But you know, if that's not um, possible, at least starting with larger multi-center observational control trials to try to identify our future research targets.
0: I could not. I could not agree with you more. Mojde um, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Now, where are you on Twitter or anything? Where can where can people find you?
1: I am on Twitter, Twitter and I believe my handle is uh, Hevner Farm D.
0: We, we will clarify that. And if, if it's, if that is wrong, we will, we will create an update so that, be, so the audience can find you. She's uh she's a very good Twitter follow. So please um, give her a follow. Mojda, thank you. So-
1: thank you for having me. My pleasure.
0: So a huge thank you to Mojda for taking time out of her busy day to join us. And another massive thank you to you, the listeners. This podcast doesn't exist without you all. So please send me feedback, positive, negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas. You know, we're always searching for um, new information that we can that we can talk about on the podcast. Um, you can do that via Twitter or Instagram at PharmacyToDose, two is T-O, um, or via email at PharmacyToDose at gmail.com. On our website, PharmacyToDose.com, you'll find the show notes that include background reading, guidelines, articles that we reference in the discussion, and much more. I love to hear from each and every one of you. And then finally, we are still searching for a podcast sponsor. So if you're interested or if you have any questions, please let me know. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.